Welcome to Northern Exposure, the podcast that we hope will help Canadian medical students explore their potential future careers as Canadian physicians. We're your hosts. I'm Ann Keller. And I'm Hannah Levy. Our guest today is Dr. Mary Kinlock. Dr. Kinlock is the Division Head for Anatomic Pathology for the Saskatchewan Health Authority in Saskatoon and is a subspecialty pathologist and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Saskatchewan in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. She completed her MD in Dublin, Ireland, residency in general pathology at the University of Saskatchewan, and fellowship in gynecologic pathology at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Kinlock's research is primarily on the molecular classification of endometrial carcinoma and quality improvement and standardization work within anatomic pathology, including tissue preservation in lung biomarker assessment in patients with advanced lung adenocarcinoma. Locally, Dr. Kinlock sits as the co-chair for anatomic pathology in the province, the vice president for the Saskatoon Regional Medical Association, and volunteer chair for the Women Leading Philanthropy Campaign for the Royal University Hospital Foundation. Her work nationally is through her role on the executive of both the Special Interest Group for Gynecologic Pathology and as a board member for the Canadian Association of Pathologists. Internationally, Dr. Kinlock is a member of the Education Committee for the International Association of Pathology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kinlock. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Anne and Hannah. We like to give a bit of a roadmap for the conversation just so you know where we're headed. So we've split our interview into three parts. The first is about you and your specialty. The second is the story of how you landed where you are. And then finally, we'll dig into the nitty gritty details of what you do on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. Great. Perfect. So one of the reasons that we really wanted to start this podcast is to get a feel for what specialties are like. To that end, can you give us an elevator pitch for your job as a gynecologic pathologist, or in other words, a short sales pitch for your specialty? Oh, sure. So A gynecologic pathologist or any type of pathologist in lab medicine must be interested in solving puzzles and getting to the bottom of complex medical problems that otherwise require a consolidated time of thinking and reflecting. And the best part about pathology is that you can do that so many times a day and you have this incredible sense of accomplishment and contribution to the patient's journey through the healthcare system. But you also really do need to be able to make decisions. It's a very decision-based specialty. You get to incorporate all the aspects of medical school that were probably considered super boring when you had to learn about them. (laughs) But once they're applied in actual medicine, it's fascinating. And... For those of us who are a little bit less well-versed in pathology, can you help us understand what gynecologic pathology is and how that differs from general pathology? Sure. So generally, as medical students, when you're looking at what the CARMS profiles are, it's split between anatomic pathology and general pathology. And anatomic pathology is interchanged with surgical pathology And even at the Royal College level, undergoing some identity crises and thinking that it's going to change their name to incorporate diagnostic pathology and molecular medicine. But it is essentially the examination of tissue under the microscope to make a diagnosis. That's anatomic pathology. And then general pathology includes anatomic pathology, but you also have to be proficient in hematopathology, medical microbiology, clinical chemistry, and inclusive of in both 
uh, anatomic and general pathology is cytopathology and autopsy pathology. So I have a general pathology residency, but as most pathologists, when they graduate from general pathology in Canada, that they go on to do a fellowship in a subspecialty of surgical pathology, and then you practice in that area. That is just a whole world that I have zero insight into. So thank you again for being here, and, and we look forward to asking you more questions. How do you feel that your personality complements your job? So like I said before about the decision-making, so if you've ever had an opportunity to do any self-reflection about what type of person you are, if you've taken any of those Myers-Briggs type of tests, uh, like I'm uh, ENTJ, and I think that the J comes into a big part of the fact of being a pathologist. So we almost get decision fatigue because every day you have your patient waiting room stacked beside you and you have to diagnose what they've come in for and provide it back into a, a meaningful way to the clinician. So my J, my judgment in that aspect helps me quite a bit. The E part for extrovert, I don't think that that's necessarily what's associated with pathology, but it does help with the communication between the clinician and myself. So I am super big on getting out of my office and promoting the work of pathology and the inclusiveness in making not just decisions for the patient, but a lot of things that you'll come to see is that there are very few specialties that don't intersect with pathology. So the communication that needs to happen, you need to have that sort of extroverted sense. Okay, so you've already started to tap into the stereotypes of pathology, so I'm excited to ask you this question. We, we like to do a little bit of a lit review and see what medical students think about a given specialty and then pose it to our guests with the idea of maybe debunking or honestly even confirming to a certain degree whether or not those stereotypes might be accurate. So this was a study that we found. It was a qualitative study published in 2011 that examined the perception of UBC medical students regarding pathology. And the study reported that students felt the pathology was a field for introverts and stereotyped as being non-medical, almost more akin to like a technician type of role. So let's chat about that. Well, I think everybody that did residency during that time when Dr. Ford put out that study is aware of it. And certainly, Tani Huang, the first author, she's practicing as a dermatopathologist in Edmonton right now, and Dr. Ford is coming back to UBC. So the one thing about pathology is, is that we all do know each other across the country. So it's a very intimate specialty in that regard. But I guess the second thing is, the only thing that I can get out of that study was that like Dr. Ford was very much loved as a lecturer at UBC and he's very charming and captivating. And despite his best efforts to try and increase the residency rates of pathology in UBC, just I think that what the success was was mostly that just people were enamored with Dr. Ford. And so it's really hard. You're going to be either like for pathology, and I think that some people may come into it too late and then realize it should have been for them or it's not gonna be for you. So we definitely flock some of those introverts, but mostly it is studious people. We work with a lot of brilliant people. The way that I think of it, especially as being division head, is that you need a lot of different types of pathologists to 
make a flower of a department. So certainly we have some of those physicians that want to come to work, be in their office, do the slide work. They do amazing jobs, write amazing reports because we communicate primarily through the written word and they are the workhorses. And then we have those people that want to do process improvement and research and they want to work more on the translational end of it and they accomplish that and promote another dimension. And then we have the people like me who want to get up and give talks and want to travel around and talk about itchy vulvas and what causes that <laughs> and another component of it. And you really need all facets of it because you can't have me who spends a lot of their time in meetings advocating for pathology and what we need to do to contribute to whatever question or problems being asked because you do need some people to be doing the slide aspect all the time. I will say that probably one of the stereotypes that does hold true is that there's a lot of gold medal winners, like a <laughs> lot of the gold medal winners. And I don't know what that kind of work, but we have a few here in, in Saskatchewan and they are crazy smart and like wonderful to work with. But um, we we tend to see that, but we you can tell that I'm not in the basement. Like you guys can see that I'm in my office, which is, has a lot of light in it, but we do work at a microscope um, for a large part of the day. That is true. We haven't fully gone to digital pathology yet. That does play a large part in our daily role with teaching nowadays, but uh, we haven't transformed. Everything is still slide-based for us. And can you comment about the technician stereotype? I mean, you've commented that it's a very cerebral specialty, so obviously that's not the case, but can you give a feel for perhaps why that's not the case? Yeah, I think that probably to go along with uh, Dr. Ford's study, when you ask a patient who do you think made their diagnosis of cancer and they think it's the surgeon or they think it's the oncologist, but it's the pathologist that not just makes the diagnosis. So if I take an example like the endometrial cancer, I don't just make a diagnosis of cancer, but I'm histotyping the cancer and telling how far it has spread and then telling, feeding back to the surgeon information about if their margins are clear and slotting the patient into a risk stratification profile that they use to determine what type of therapy they're going to give the patient. But a lot of that is now even changing because all of those features are based off of light microscopy and we are slowly transitioning into a molecular classification, which again is done on the tissue and that I put into a risk stratification, but that further gives the information of a patient's prognosis and what therapy is going to work for that patient. So I, I often find it difficult to even imagine being on the other side as a surgeon or in my clinical colleagues case, a gynecologic oncologist, and to just hear me say the words of serous carcinoma or a granulosa cell tumor and, and them having to trust me that I know what I'm talking about and that that's what they're going to treat the patient as even though they can't see it. Because for me, I'd be like, show me those Calexner bodies. Like I want to see what that looks like under the microscope to know if what I'm going to tell the patient is going to be accurate. So there's a, there's a heck of a lot of trust put in your pathologist to um, transfer that information over to the patient. Um, I am so fortunate that I work with the gynecologic oncologists 
that I do that really span the spectrum, surgery and oncology. They give their own chemo and that, that just doesn't happen in any other specialty. But they also, as a group, span a wide diversity of surgeon versus very giving and loving clinician. And because there's not a lot of great treatments for gynecologic oncology patients, they're often doing palliative therapy for their patients and that they communicate to the patients and are with them during that end of life process. It's something that I, I couldn't do. I often see myself as a reporter, like I just report the news and then it's up to them to take that as the human aspect and put that into words for the patients to understand. I know that that's maybe a skill that I wouldn't have that I've seen them do so eloquently. Uh, so I'm ha I am so happy that I am the bearer of bad news, but only to the clinician and then they take it on to the patient. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to move us along to the second portion of our interview and ask you really the story of how it is you ended up where you are. Some of the things we'd love to hear about are the story of your medical education, if there were multiple paths you were choosing between, and why you chose what you chose. I have a degree in microbiology and immunology. And at the end of that, I wasn't thinking about medicine, but I was like, oh, I should try and apply. And this was probably 2001, and I was 21 years old, and just finishing up, and I had no idea how to play the game. I, like, I just didn't know anything. And so I applied, and they said, no, you're 3% below the cutoff of what we're going to interview this year. And I said, oh, okay, well, what do I, what do I do? And they said, well, you just take another degree. And I said, well, I just finished a degree. <laughs> and again, thinking at 21, you're thinking, oh my God, my life is a half over or whatever. <laughs> I couldn't possibly have the time to do that. And at this point, I had only lived in Saskatoon. And like I mentioned before we started recording, I had lived in Belleville, Ontario, but I'd never really been anywhere. Like we weren't a family that went on extravagant vacations. And so I, I had been to Belleville and then I had driven in the back of a Ford Taurus in the summertime to come to Saskatoon. But other than that, it was pretty much limited. So I took six months and traveled Europe. And at the time, the University of Saskatchewan was on. They were having some accreditation difficulties for their medical school. They were on probation. And one of the family doctors that my parents had, they had a son who had gone to school in Ireland. And they said, you should go there. You should try it. You'll get It's accredited. And I thought okay, well, I'll look into it. So I looked into it while I was over there in Europe and I didn't really realize how much I had relied on my parents or maybe how sheltered is maybe a strong word, but how non-self-reliant I was. And, and then I went to Dublin and all of a sudden I grew up a little bit and had these amazing experiences. And when I think back about it now, it ended up working out exactly, I guess, how it should and benefited me. I really had a wonderful time. And then I, I had met my boyfriend, now husband, after the first year of medical school. And he was in law school at, in Saskatoon. And we said, okay, what are we going to do? So then I was trying to figure out what I was going to match into. And I remember being on colorectal surgery rotation and thinking, I just, I can't do this. I 
don't like the smell of the wards. I am not sure. Like I used to do protein engineering and I used to work in a lab and I really like that. And this is just not what I want to do. I, I didn't think I was bad at any of it, but I wasn't getting that kind of excitement to do any of it. And we went into tumor board rounds and there was a guy in the corner who had a nice suit on and he looked well rested. And, <laughs> and like he was telling the surgeons what to do. And I was like, who is this guy? And I went up to him as a medical student. I said, I, I who are you? What is this job? And I'm, can I come and see where you work? And then for the last year and a half, then I spent any free time I had going up to the lab and then started making the connections back in Saskatoon of, okay, who works in the pathology lab? And like, what kind of things do you do with the other medical physicians? And what kind of research are you involved in? And that slowly was how I developed the relationship in um, pathology, because they only match one person. Uh, we only had one open spot. And so I had to sell myself as an IMG coming back and saying like, I'm from Saskatoon, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay, I'm, Pathology is my passion. I need to come and be here. And I was so thankful that they took me. So then I spent the five years in Saskatoon here in general pathology, because that's what they had. And general pathology is more like, an, in the States, they call it APCP, anatomic pathology and clinical pathology. And almost everybody does anatomic pathology, clinical pathology in the States, because they have many more mid-sized cities that you would have to cover the transfusion service or you would have to cover a microbiology call. But most people practice in academic centers for pathology in Canada, so you just cover your one area and there's usually somebody else to do the same. However, I did have like a, a wonderful colleague go through residency, general pathology with me from Dalhousie, who practices in Red Deer and she's a true general pathologist. Like she signs out protein electrophoresis and she reads hemoglobinopathies and she does her surgical pathology. And that is really like a gift to Red Deer. But that was kind of my aha. And then I, I, I ended up at UBC for gynecologic pathology, mostly because of what was happening in pathology at the time. Ovarian cancer was switching to being fallopian tube cancer, and that whole story was very captivating to me. And the fellowship director at UBC was also very a captivating person to me that I wanted to spend more time with. And so I was very lucky that they took me for a year, and then I've been back in Saskatoon ever since. And have the husband and the two kids and I, I turn 40 next week and I am so glad to be out of my 30s because us women really pack it all into one <laughs> period of like you have to get everything done. So I'm looking forward to taking a break after that. Okay, so surgery didn't turn your crank. No. And boy, you wanted to be the well-rested person in the corner. Before then, were there any other specialties that were on your radar? It was medical genetics, medical microbiology. It was anything that I could do probably in the lab. And then you're kind of limited as to what you can do in Saskatchewan for me because I, I wanted to be with my husband. So it was all of those ones that you kind of see on the CARMS list and you're like, what's that? And <laughs> but it just it, that that was the stuff that interested me. Now, I will say that I have met some very cerebral people that work in lots of different areas like anesthesia and 
do great research in emergency medicine. And you're going to get that no matter what Royal College specialty that you do. It just, it happened to be that that was my area of interest before I went into medical school and it carried through. I like the fact that I can sit and the patients don't phone me. They don't mind if I need to go to the bathroom. They will sit quietly on these slides until I get back. And they want me to because then that is when I am rested and in that mindset to make their diagnosis. I didn't want to practice like a certain element of reflex medicine. I, I wasn't great at that. Even though I had been in the military for four years while I was in undergrad, I'm not a shrinking violet and I, I don't have any um, issue with being pushed mentally and physically, that was all there. I had done all of that. And I, I was like, okay, well, I want to move on to something else now. Is there anything you wish you had known before making that decision or any advice you have for students who are currently making the decision of which specialty to choose? So I think it was really difficult because there wasn't, there was more that um, like proverbial formal in curtain that it was, unless you're seeking it out, it was not, the exposure was not there. I think that they're doing a really good job now at the University of Saskatchewan of allowing the medical students to shadow different people and to bring them in different ways and formats to meet each other. I do meet a fair number of family physicians, especially when I was on an intern year and especially when I talk to them on the phone when I'm talking about some of their patients' results, that they're like, geez, you know, that sounds really cool. I really wish I would have known about that. And so I think it is hard as well, because when you're a medical student, your job is to learn how to do a history and physical and learn how to be part of the team. And when you bring those skills to pathology, it, they do not translate. Like you cannot pick up a slide and look at it. However, it does translate. It's amazing how much it translates because you will know the patient journey of, because you will know provincial cervical screening guidelines and you will know if that patient has the diagnosis, what they go on to have biopsy or HPV testing, that you'll know that they go on to a leap. You'll know what happens therapeutically afterwards, but you just won't be able to diagnose it. And so it's very difficult to like just come and shadow the pathologist because you're like, well, you're waiting for some sort of aha moment that may not happen. And probably the most exciting thing, which is an intraoperative frozen section that we do. So when the patient is in the operating room and there is something unexpected that the surgeon finds or they need a margin status or they need confirmation of tissue, then they can send up a frozen section, which we in real time will freeze the tissue, cut it, stain it, and make the diagnosis while the patient is still in the operating room. The best way that we can integrate medical students or approach them is have the medical student bring that up to the lab. And then we can kind of show off a little bit about some of the exciting aspects <laughs> of it. Because if you come to the lab, it may it might not happen that day. And it would be like doing a rotation in Emerge and you're like waiting for the trauma to happen. Like you just don't know when. It's exciting when it does. So that, that would be my encouragement is that when you're in surgery, you grab it out of the porter's hand and you're like, don't worry, the medical student's got it. I'm going to take it. And then we'll, we'll uh, usher you through it when you get up to the lab. This is fascinating. Say I'm thinking pathology. CARMS lists heme pathology, anatomical pathology, and general pathology. 
What would be the pros and cons to each of those if you were advising a student on a potential route to go? So hematopathology is for those that are really interested in molecular pathology. There is the integration of a lot of very precise diagnostics in hematopathology that incorporate many different modalities of cytogenetics, fusions, PCR, their diagnostic criteria are much more rooted in exacting molecular diagnostics, whereas anatomic pathology is much more still of an interpretive specialty. This is what it looks like under the microscope, and therefore this is my interpretation of what it is. But anatomic pathology, I would say, is for you're going to be able to practice anywhere in Canada with a Royal College accredited anatomic pathology residency. It just depends on what you want to do. There's so many different paths that you can take. Do you want to work in a community hospital, a community pathology lab? Do you want to work as part of a university? Those are probably the two biggest choices that you have to make. And then for general pathology, like I mentioned before, is that if you really want to work as part of that core laboratory physician where you're doing everything. For example, Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and Moose Jaw, and North Battleford all have general pathologists, and they all are have lab directors that have done general pathology that provide all of that service to the uh, patients in that catchment area. But like in Ontario, there's lots of places. So when I was doing my residency, um, you could go up to Prince Albert to do your true general pathology rotation, but I chose to go to Belleville, Ontario, because that's where my family was from, and they had three general pathologists there that really did everything. It just depends on what type of life that you want to have and what kind of work that you want to do. So if you want to do, I would say general pathology, if you want to work in sort of that smaller community area, although the general pathology section at the Canadian Association of Pathologists is very vocal and they do a lot of national guidelines. So you can still have that influence there. And then anatomic pathology, you can just work anywhere. It's amazing. The job market is open right across Canada. Thank you for that overview of all the different aspects within pathology. I'm going to move us along and dig into more of what you specifically do on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. So we know that there's no such thing as typical in anything medicine related or most things in general. But if we were to follow you around for the week, starting Monday morning, what would we see? Sure. I generally work bankers hours. Like I work the hours that other clinicians offices are open. So I get to work between eight and 8.30. I live across the street from the hospital. So I walk the 400 meters to my office and I bring my coffee with me. So I'm able to go past my mailbox. I pick up my slides for the day. So they come as like a stack of slides with requisitions from the operating room. And then I log on to my software. So our primary way that we communicate is through laboratory reports. And for the mornings are generally the best time for me to make critical diagnoses. I don't want to do it later on when my brain is tired in the afternoon. So generally, most of the mornings are set aside for doing that type of work. I start with the biopsies, cervical vulvar 
endometrial biopsies and I go through them, put out the reports, and then I then I usually have the hysterectomies or vulvectomies and oophorectomies. I leave the cancers for last. And so I'll go through, you have to look at every piece of tissue on every slide, and then you're synthesizing it from these two-dimensional structures in your head into a three-dimensional structure. So you can imagine like those that do breast pathology, they've taken something that's three-dimensional and are are trying to recapitulate it from two-dimensional slides to get six different margins around where the cancer has spread. So you're you're kind of being mindful of that. And then there's always a flow chart going in my mind of what am I missing? What else do I need to look for? What's the differential diagnosis here? Do I need to do anything to confirm that? How sure am I? And then like you usually argue with yourself for a while. And then once you're ready to make the diagnosis, there's usually like a number of steps that we do afterwards. So what's big and what I find that people don't get about pathology is that we do a lot of, because I love the fact that the medical students now have so much social justice, like that just pours out of them. And I think that they think that pathology is not gonna give that to them. But I mean, I work a lot in women's health and even with the access to cervical screening, that's like a big thing. Like, And so the biggest thing now for me is that anybody doesn't matter where you are in Saskatchewan, anybody who has a diagnosis of endometrial cancer will get the same diagnosis and access to the molecular diagnostics, regardless of where you live. So then I usually um, go through the like checklist of what needs to be done for these patients. And so we screen for hereditary cancers, and then we screen for uh, what type of therapy that they're going to get afterwards. So that will usually take me till 11 or so. I book lunch into my calendar just to remind myself that that is the time to eat and break. And then usually Monday afternoons is set aside for whatever big project that I'm working on. So right now it's a tumor biobank that we've received money for. So there's a lot of regulatory aspects that go into it that you need time to write the ethics proposal, operational proposal, regulatory SOPs, how is this going to work? And so I save time for that. Tuesday afternoons are for rounds prep. So rounds, tumor board rounds always happen Wednesday morning. So the list comes out, the slides get pulled, set in my mailbox, and it every person in the northern half of the province if they get a diagnosis of some type of gynecologic cancer i will take the time to look at their biopsy and review every past biopsy everything in their chart so it's that consolidated time and then on wednesday morning i get together with the gynecologic surgeons the oncologists radiation oncology the genetic counselors the nurse navigators and radiologists and we go through every patient so there's nothing missed. We get the whole picture of the patient and then there's a discussion for everyone and there's consensus of where we wanna go with the patient. So Wednesday morning after that huddle, I have a standing provincial meeting where everyone in the lab talks about what the COVID response is. Before it wasn't so much about COVID, but it was about what was going on, but that's a provincial meeting. And then Wednesday afternoon, I have my dyad meeting. So I have a dyad at the same level as me that is in charge of all the operational aspects of the lab. So um, all the technologists and everything that the technologist does that goes into getting me the like best slide possible. It's like a 
tea ceremony where like there's a value-added step for every piece and so um if there's anything operationally like our my dyad and i talk about that so we have a set time for that and then usually there's either a quality assurance meeting or there's an operations meeting the lab is well known as one of the best royal college specialties for promoting quality improvement. So taking something, mapping it out, having a metric to decide where you're at, putting an intervention strategy in and seeing and measuring it again and seeing if you've improved. So we have a number of projects that go on with that, like I mentioned about the tissue preservation um, for the biopsies, because when patients have lung adenocarcinoma, they're like the interventional radiology biopsy that they get is 90 microns, it's see-through, it's so small. And you need to be able to use that tissue to diagnose the cancer and then to perform five different molecular studies on it to figure out which treatment that patient is going to get. And if you don't do it in a judicious manner, the patient will need to get a rebiopsy. And these are very sick people and you don't want to put them through that. So that's Wednesday afternoon. Thursday morning we have lab operations um, where we run through everything in the lab from strategic projects quality and safety that sort of thing and then thursday afternoon there's a huddle for the pathologists and we go through interesting cases that we've seen through the week so we share them it can be for interest or you can ask for help from any of your colleagues then fridays are usually the day friday afternoons are the day that i reserve for research so i have standing meetings with two medical students that are doing projects with me they each get an hour so they can email me at any point during the week but that hour time we have a, like a list of things that we're going to go through then I will usually be finishing up some sort of writing on Friday afternoon. Like I said, I don't want to do slide work during that, but weaved in through any of that other time, I'm reading slides. So if I have a downtime of like an hour, then I'll, I'll read the slides. And you are always kind of checking your own metric because you can't let them, like they need to be signed out within a day or so after if you can't if you don't get it like you're not going to get smarter by the next day so if you don't know what it is and you've worked it up appropriately then you need to ask for help and but the whole process shouldn't take you more than the four days it sounds so collaborative yeah well you have to be because disease doesn't stop at the gynecologic tract so it can differentiate into looking like anything and the same thing happens with ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, it can go anywhere. So you, like, whereas my specialty is gynecologic pathology, we have some pathologists that have just, I feel like they've just seen everything. So you could just show them anything and they're like, oh yeah, I've seen this before. This is what this pattern is like. This is the, the path that you need to fall under. There's very few people that are like that nowadays because of how complex the molecular aspect has got, but they have what, what's called really good eyes where they like can just see that pattern recognition really well. So you have to you have to have that. You just can't work in a vacuum. I mean, you are alone for most of the day while you're doing your individual slides, but I would say probably 30% of the patient's material that I look at is seen by another pathologist. You mentioned business hours. Is there a call? Oh, there is call. We do call uh, probably about once every two months. We do a week at a time. 
And for clinical pathology, it's, it's heavier. So hematopathology, you're gonna get called in for first occurrence blasts in a patient. You have to confirm that. Um, you'll get called in for malarial smears. You'll get called in for critical numbers, like critical results. Clinical chemistry, you can usually manage much more on the phone. They're usually management questions about like, what medium should I send this test in? This patient has these symptoms. I'm thinking about doing like an aspirin level. How would I do that? What, how would I send off for that? And so you don't usually need to come in. Medical microbiology is somewhat similar. You'll, they'll be asking for guiding advice for antibiotic choice, or they right now you're looking for like approvals for COVID antibody testing, that sort of thing. The surgical pathology, you'll get called sometimes to help interpret things that they need on the weekend or if there's an urgent specimen coming in, but usually the resident will take care of anything that needs to be inked in the gross room, but you'll, you'll get called in for frozen sections, but it's not heavy. It's very rare. I mean, like some places are busier. If you have a busy transplant service, you're going to get called in for those transplants, uh, like liver transplants. But I think I've maybe been called in a handful of times in the last five years. So good to know. And it's really hard to find this information anywhere other than talking to people who are living it. So thanks for shedding light on that. What's an aspect of your job that makes you excited to go to work most days? Most of the time, it's a collaboration on the larger aspects of the complexities of healthcare. So as an example, we're moving from conventional pap smears to liquid-based cytology, it's th which we are one of the last provinces to do. But with all of that, you need to decide, okay, how are you going to run your HPV testing through that? And like, what platform are you going to choose? And how are you going to work with the cancer agency to change your provincial guidelines? And so bringing in that high level decision-making stuff, that, that's what I love to do. And I, it's crazy that I get to do it. I mean, I'm not that old and I haven't been in practice that long, but if you're interested in that sort of thing, you like you absolutely, you have to leave that bit of your brain that says, well, somebody else will like certainly somebody else with more experience will do that. But after a while, like I have a, an amazing department head that sponsors a lot of the things that I do and put me in this division head role and just provides an immense amount of support to me that now I just feel like, oh, I should be there. And like, you absolutely should have pathology at the table. And why can't I be that voice? And if I don't think I am, then definitely we have somebody down the hallway that can. So that is crazy that we get to be a part of that. Cause you think, well, somebody's doing it. Why, why isn't it me? Um, I think a lot of people probably really say that they really enjoy teaching residents. I find residents super intimidating and they're just so smart and you're like, am I even helping you at all? I don't know. Like they come in and they usually do a really good job. And so I find that residents by all accounts make me a better pathologist, but at the same time I get more nervous. It's more like taking a test to, the, to do it. But at the end of the day, they, I think probably what you'll hear a lot of people say, regardless of what specialty that they're in, is that you have to be able to take the most boring aspect of your specialty and then be able to do that for the rest of your working career. And for pathology, that would be tray of slide, tray of endometrial biopsies, and you are excited to see what's on those slides. There's beauty in the benign. It's not boring to me if you have dysfunctional uterine bleeding and I find 
a placental site nodule in there and that's the reason why you were bleeding and now I can confidently tell the clinician okay this is you solved it you got it it was a little implantation site now it's she's going to be okay that provides a lot of joy and excitement and if you can get by on that then I think that pathology is probably going to be a good fit for you. Was there a moment at some point in your career when you thought aha this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing? Or has it been more of a general sense of satisfaction over time? There was one time when I was coming back to Saskatoon and I was on a six-week elective and I realized that the pathologists were collaborating with the lab that I used to do undergraduate research with, like in the cancer agency. And once I discovered that there could be that like bench to bedside, which is later called like translational research, once I realized that you could do clinical work every day that could contribute to what would be basic science research, I thought that that's where I need to be. And it's it's hard because in Saskatchewan, that's hard to find your niche. Certainly in larger centers, they would do much more of that because it's all turning molecular where you would sequence 450 genes and you would do transcriptome aspects of it. But let me tell you that Saskatchewan is very unique and has what no other reference center like Memorial Sloan Kettering or U of T would have, which is a non-mobile population that comes to their appointments and follows up with tissue sampling. So we have people's biopsies from 1990 right till today and like nowhere in the world has that. So if you want to do any type of work on the long-term outcomes of pathology diagnostics, like Saskatchewan is the place to be. So once I kind of figured that out, I was like, okay, well, this, this obviously is an untapped resource. I mean, these patients are total gifts to the scientific community. Thank you for sharing that. We've spoken a little bit about this and you've definitely shed a lot of light already, but is there anything that we haven't covered? And if we were to try and look online or read about pathology, gynecological pathology, is there any information that we wouldn't find doing research on our own? Well, I mean, you, you haven't really asked me about like how much money we make yet. So, and that's probably <laughs> hard to find. Pathologists are different in that they can't hang a shingle. So you have to usually be part of a hospital and the hospital pathology positions are usually tied to an FTE equivalent that's set by the Ministry of Health. So even if you wanted to hire more pathologists, you have to have that in your budget somewhere. But by that extent, I'm an employee of the health authority, whereas most physicians are their own independent contractor. By the fact that I'm an employee, with an employee contract means that I get benefits. So any other out of scope benefit that another employee of the health authority gets, including a pension, which is unbelievable. And I get a CME budget and I get four weeks of holidays plus two weeks of CME time plus family leave plus bereavement plus plus plus. Like it's, it's unbelievable what you get. So lots of people can do independent contracts now. Uh, and that's just, your choice of whether you want to incorporate or not, the option is there. Most pathologists are on a provincial grid. So you will make the same amount of money as your colleague makes up to a certain point. So you'll have to go through a number of steps and then you'll max out at the top step. 
and the steps are just the first four years of practice that you go through an annual review and then you're bumped up to the next financial step. So you start at step one if you're coming right out of residency, you start at step two if you have a fellowship, but it starts here, it starts at 316,000 and it moves to 363,000 and then you get an extra 15,000 for your CME and then call is approximately $1,700 a week. So if you kind of add up all of those things, there's different places where you can work privately as well too. There's different private labs. Saskatchewan is, you know, home of Tommy Douglas. Like we do not have private labs. So the private, you can work in the private lab. You can do your work and then go work in the private lab for additional money. And I will say probably, I think we're compensated pretty well for the lifestyle that I'm I'm here. I, I, the the pathologists in Vancouver make the same amount of money as me, but the houses are much more expensive. But going across the country, you make about the same amount generally, and then it's just whatever extra work that you're doing. Teaching is not lucrative. Teaching the residents is not lucrative. But then you just you sign it on as part of your contract, so you're going to take that on with the university aspect of it. So if you wanted to learn more about it, there's a brand new website out of the States called Path Elective that seems to have done an amazing job of giving exposure to pathology, potential pathology residents. So I would probably check that out for more information. Thank you for shedding light on that. It's not a topic that we have broached with most of our interviews, and we've debated about whether or not we should. So it's really appreciated that you brought it up, and especially the information that it's generally the same across the country, despite the fact that there are cost of living differences, is really helpful. Our last question is just any final words of wisdom or advice for students who are considering a career like yours. I would say that probably most pathologists are more than happy to have a student come and spend a morning with them. And it's just a matter of getting you guys hooked up with each other. If your medical school has some type of uh, career planning and they're, they're putting in socials and they have the format that allow you to pick which ones you wanna do, that's not the right format. Everybody needs to have the seat at the table and we need to be able to pitch it to you because otherwise we went for years with just nobody picking pathology. And once you get them in the lab, it'll help you with whatever you're doing. It doesn't matter. If you're going into surgery, pathology is going to help you. You're going into radiology, you're going to need pathology. So regardless of whatever it is that you're doing, I would strongly consider you at least familiarizing yourself with where the lab is, who's in there, and who you're going to need to call in an eventual fashion about one of your patients. That is excellent advice. Thank you so much for being on our show. We had such a great time talking to you. I had a great time, guys. I'm so happy that you did this. Like, I'll be interested to listen to the rest of it. Maybe I'll change careers later on in life. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like you have a pretty good. I don't know that I would. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Northern Exposure. To suggest a guest, send us feedback, or learn more, check out our website, northernexposurepodcast.ca. We are both students at McMaster's Michael G. DeGroote School of Medicine, but this podcast is in no way affiliated with the school or program and all these expressed are ours alone. 
Views expressed by guests on our show are personal opinions and should not be considered representative of any hospital, university, or other organization with which they may be affiliated. Music composed by David Rubel and performed by the David Rubel Quintet. 